phone. We will be in Matthew chapter 28 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, please feel free to use one of our our pew Bibles. Um, If you're unsure how to get to Matthew 28, there's a table of contents in the front or in our pew Bibles, it's page 1550. It's a, a translation that's a little bit different, but I think it's close enough you should be able to follow along and keep up with what's happening. Now, while you're turning there, I want to make you aware of a, of a few things. We've had a number of folks in our uh, church family who are sick and have things going on as far as their health goes. Um, Sharon Hartwell is in the hospital currently. Um, Sharon Godfrey is in the hospital currently. And last I heard is in critical care, though I'm not sure if she has gotten out as of this morning. But she's been having a number of issues. We ask you to keep praying for her. Um, Doug is home now, and he uh, is, is in good spirits, as Doug is, and uh, Doug Johnson. The wards have come home with baby Danielle as of this morning, so she is no longer in the NICU. Um, Jacob, who helped play with Maggie this morning, his grandmother is out of the hospital now, I believe, but is struggling with some health issues. And then finally, uh, Robbie Robertson, who I have not had the pleasure to meet personally, I believe his family moved to Tennessee before I arrived here, but has had a number of issues, and I'm sure a lot of you are aware of, um, a brain infection that has led to seizures. For them, they uh, are, are in a time where they've gone through a lot of medical procedures, have had a lot of time not at work because of dealing with these medical issues. And so we are looking at ways as a church to help them uh, financially. We're going to let you know more about that in the next week or two. Right now, they have a GoFundMe page that you can give to if you want. You can find that through uh, their Facebook. But, but please be praying for all of these requests and be uh, thinking about how maybe we can help uh, the Robertsons going forward. And we're going to pray for them here in, in just a moment. Um, as we pray to, to open up the service. Before we get to that, actually, no, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and pray just for everything and, and uh, just put things a little out of order and differently, but we'll do that. Heavenly Father, um, we come to you this morning knowing there are a number of people in our church family who are going through physical issues, Lord, sickness, um, and we know that you have the power to heal. You have the power to give wisdom to doctors, to know what to do in these situations. Um, You have the power to give encouragement to these folks who um, may very well be discouraged at the fact that um, for some, they don't know exactly what's going on. For others, uh, they've just been in the hospital for for a long time. Whatever the situations are in all of these, we ask that you would give your grace, that you would give your love, you give your mercy and peace to them and to their families. We trust you in these things and know that you're good. And Lord, even though we haven't read your word yet, our prayer is that as we read it and consider what it has to say, that by your Holy Spirit, you'd be illuminating these scriptures to us, that you would be helping us to understand exactly what it means to go and make disciples. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us the preaching of your word this morning and your spirit's power. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Before we read, I want you to consider the fact that a lot of people often think about the meaning of life, and it comes up a lot even in things like movies and television where people say, well, what exactly is the meaning of life? That comes up often. 
right? Why are we here? What are we doing? What is the purpose? Now, for us as humans, I, I, I think a document called the Westminster Catechism uh, signed it, or, uh, summed it up well whenever it asked, what is the chief end of man? And it's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I think that really is what God has put us as humans on this earth to do, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But for us, I want to ask a question that goes beyond just you individually, and that's to the church. Why exactly does the church exist? For what purpose are we here on this earth? Why isn't it that as soon as we come to faith in Christ, that he doesn't just beam us up to heaven, if you will, if you'll allow a Star Trek reference, just beam us on up? Why is that? You probably know the answer already because I know it's behind me right here. And I'm going to argue this morning from Matthew 28 that the reason he has left us here, the purpose that we exist for on this earth is to make disciples. So our main idea this morning is very simple. We exist to make disciples. Pleasant Gardens Baptist Church exists to make disciples. And maybe you're not there yet. Maybe for you this is a new concept. I hope it's not, but I want to Help us to understand, and I want you to be thinking about the fact that God has put us here. He has left us here in this place to make disciples. That is the purpose for which we exist. To which you're probably thinking, sure, Ethan, that's good and all, but there are a number of things that we are supposed to do that God has called us to do. To which I will tell you, yes. And we will get to all of those things if we are making disciples. However, if we aim to do those things without making disciples of Jesus first, then all of those things are going to become this lateral movement, this activity that really at the end of the day is good, it's not bad, but it's not what it could be because its foundation, its source is not that of discipleship. So for us, we exist to make disciples and we're going to see from Matthew 28 a few ways. But before we we see those three ways, let's read it. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient Word of God. We exist to make disciples in three ways. We will be thinking about how to make disciples in three different concepts, three different things that I want you to be aware of. The first one is that we exist to make disciples, and the way that we do it is confidently. To give some context, if you've not been looking around to see, this is right after Jesus has died. And so the disciples were in a bit of a state of shock because this is the Messiah. This is the one who's going to come and kick out the Romans. This is the one who's going to come and and set everything right. But then he dies. The good news is that he comes back and he resurrects and he's with them for a time. But as we see, still some of them worship. Because they realize that he really is not just a human Messiah, but he is God himself. But even then, some doubted. 
Even then, some weren't sure about what was going on. Some weren't sure about who he was. So here's what he comes and he says to them. Because, and, and here's why he says it. Because if you're doubting in him, then you're going to doubt in the mission that he is giving. But he tells them this, to give them some confidence. And it's not like confidence, in, like, like a therapeutic confidence, where I just need somebody to build me up and make me feel better so I can go out and get done what needs to get done. But he wants them to understand that what he's about to tell them to do, they have to have a confidence that comes from him. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. See, that was the big question for them up to this point. It's what kind of authority is this? Whenever he teaches, he taught as one who had authority. Whenever he commanded the wind and waves to obey him, he did it as one who had authority. But there was confusion on his authority. Some didn't understand that he didn't think he had any authority at all. The disciples struggled to say, well, what kind of authority does he have? And every time he would do something, it was almost kind of like they were surprised. It's like, all right, he's um, healed people of blindness, and now he's, you know, that's okay, that's good, but what are you going to do in this storm? And he's like, well, I'm going to calm this storm, right? And, and all these things that happened, they seemed to struggle with it. What kind of authority does this man have? He tells them in the midst of some doubting, both doubting him and doubting the mission that he's about to give them. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, when we consider biblically the concepts that make up all of creation, that's everything. Heaven, the heavens, and earth. That's all. Those are the two concepts. He has authority everywhere. And because of this authority, now he tells them, I have authority to give you this command. I'm going to tell you to go and make disciples, and you can do it because you're coming from me. And I'm the one who's saying go. So for us, whenever we struggle with, do I have the authority to go to this person and tell them that they don't know Christ and they need to know Christ, or they'll be separated from him forever because of their sin? And a lot of us have been convinced by the culture and convinced by our own hearts that struggle with these things to say, well, I don't have any authority to tell them that. That's not my place. Jesus says, I give you all authority. I have the authority on heaven and earth to tell you to do this thing. And because of that, you can go and do it. We don't have to wonder whether or not the task that he has called us to will succeed. Because his, our making of disciples does not rest on us. It doesn't rest on how good you make the pitch. It doesn't rest on how well... You love them, though God wants us to love people well as we aim to share the gospel with them. But whenever we get upset, whenever we mess up in some way, when we don't say something just right, understand that it does not rest on you and how you do it. It rests on his authority and his spirit changing them. So we exist to make disciples, first of all, confidently, knowing that this is what he has called us to do and he is empowering us to do it. But secondly, we exist to make disciples definitively. There is something definite about what is happening here. And unfortunately, for a lot of folks, the definiteness of following Jesus doesn't exist. There's so many people who go through life and say, well, I don't know, am I following Jesus? Am I not? I don't know. I'll tell you a stat, and it's a stat, a stat that should make us really kind of sad that it's the case, but in Southern Baptist churches, of which we are one in case you didn't know, People are baptized an average of 2.7 times. 
2.7 times. Think about that. Because in the Bible we see people get baptized, well, once. People struggle with the definiteness of what has happened there. Because so often the way that we do evangelism comes from a place of revivalism. It comes from this thing called the Second Great Awakening. And we don't have time to go into the history of all of that this morning. But it comes from so many people getting whipped up into an emotional state and saying, well, I need to do this and I need to do that. And at the end of the day, making a decision, saying they're going to do something, making a profession of faith that has not come from the Holy Spirit, but has come from the emotions. Has come from a place of confusion. Has come from a place of not of where we say, if you'll just come down and we're going to sing a few more stanzas and you have this, where you're sitting there and you're thinking, what am I going to do? And the counseling that happens on the front pew between the pastor and that person happens in a few stanzas when it probably happened in a few hours or a few days or a few weeks or even a few months to help them understand what it means to truly follow Jesus. And people come out with all kinds of confusion about what it means. But there's a definiteness to what is happening here. Because he tells them, go and make disciples. Without question, you're going to make disciples. Now we're going to talk about how, what does this definiteness mean? First of all, he tells them to go. Now there's some question about what does it mean to, to go, right? Some people say it means as you are going. And the idea is as you are going about daily life, make disciples while you go. That's certainly a good thought. That is not a bad thought by any means. As you are going about what you do. As you go and work at the fire department, as you work at the schoolhouse, as you work wherever it is, make disciples as you're going. That's a good thought. Some people kind of disagree with that and say it just means it's a simple command of go and make disciples. That we are supposed to take ourselves and go places to make disciples. Now sometimes that means that God is calling you to actually pick up and go somewhere else to make disciples. Maybe for you, that means that he is calling you to go to a country where Christ has not been heard before, where the gospel's not been heard before. And he's telling you, go. And for you, you're saying, I can't go. I can't go and do this. I'm too old. I'm not educated enough. I've got, I've got retirement coming up in like two years. I can't go and just like drop everything and make disciples. I've got college coming up. Whatever it is, he has a command, a definitive command of Go. And he tells them to make disciples. Now, disciples is a word that, at the end of the day, just is one, a disciple is one who follows a teacher. Who a teacher says, this is how things are, this is the way things should be, this is how you should act and live in light of these truths. And so Jesus says, you're to make disciples. You're to be taking people and teaching them to follow, not you, but him. So what is this idea of going and making disciples? What does it actually look like in practice? Well, first of all, it starts with baptism. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we see, first of all, that the only thing, I'm going to say this out the gate, that the only thing that actually saves us is God's Holy Spirit giving us the gift of faith in Christ. We put our faith in Jesus, and that is what saves us. The idea of sola fide, faith alone, not works, saves us. But that being said, God calls us to obedience with an action. And that action is a baptism that comes after we're saved. 
This is a baptism that grasps the the basics of who God is and what he's called us to do. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now this is important, this is totally necessary, because his original audience, the people, there were so many folks who struggled with the fact, they believed in the Father, and they had some concept of the Holy Spirit there in the Old Testament. But what about the Son? What do we do with this guy who calls himself the Son of Man? Who calls himself God's own Son? What do we do with him? Jesus is making a very narrow gate. And see, Jesus says that, that um, the gate is narrow to come to him. For them, it wasn't good enough just to believe in the God of their ancestors, Yahweh, but to believe in the Son whom he sent. On top of that, what this baptism really means, it's not a ritual that gets you saved, it's not a ritual that makes you clean and right before God, but it is something that signifies that you have been buried with Christ in his death and you have been raised with him to new life. There's a definiteness to that. Because you are saying when you do that, I have been crucified with Christ. I have taken part in his death. I am taking part one day in the resurrection to come. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, all nations, as we think about this, all nations is something for them. When we think about nations in the New Testament, we have to understand that for so many of the Jews, there was a struggle to say, this is for us and not for the Gentiles. On a certain level, he is tearing down their walls, their, the, the hostility they had toward the Gentiles, thinking they, they weren't good enough, and said, this is for all nations. This is not just for your fellow Jews. This is for every single person on earth. At the end of the day, though, this is the expansion of something that's called the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. And it's found in Genesis 1, 28. It says this. This is as God is creating humanity. He says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. God gave a cultural mandate to say, you need to go and create culture on this earth that I've given you. You are to go and have kids. Let's be fruitful and multiply. Go and have children and fill up the earth with it and subdue it. Reign over it. Have authority over it. We are representing God on this earth as we reign over it. So in some ways, this is an expansion of the cultural mandate where we are subduing all of the earth. We're taking this to all of the earth. But it's also an expansion on this idea of how God's people are and have always been a kingdom of priests. In so many nations, there were the regular people and everybody else. Or Sorry, the regular people, everybody else, and then the priests. The one who went before their God and offered sacrifices and would teach about that God. And when God set up his law, he certainly had these priests. These ones who their job was to represent God to everyone else. But at the same time, he tells them that they're a kingdom of priests. This is where we, as Baptists, get our doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. This is something that started way back. This is not a New Testament concept. This is not a past 500 years concept. This is a concept that started when God gave the law. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, 
He says this, Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. He is setting them apart. He is giving them something special to do. Although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. And he tells Moses, these are the words you were to say to the Israelites. God set apart his people, always has, and he always will. Set apart his people while we're here on earth to be a kingdom of priests. This didn't end with the New Testament. There's a continuity there of how we are God's kingdom of priests. So we go to the world and we say, listen, we are representing God to you and we're saying, listen, on behalf of God, be reconciled to him. So as we go to all nations, we're doing what God's people have always done. He's just reminding them of this and putting it in the context of now that he has risen, he has all authority. So we do it definitively and finally, Verse 20, we do it completely. For so many of us, for so many Christians in America today, becoming a disciple has stopped once you left the crusade, once you left the revival, once you walked the aisle and signed the card, maybe you even got baptized, maybe. And then it stopped. We are a nation full of people who are converts without being disciples. We have made many converts, church. We've not made many disciples in this world, in this country, maybe even in PG. We're not called to make converts. We're not called to count the number of baptisms. And the SBC, we, we struggle with this because we want to count baptisms, talk about how many people got baptized, and then they never, never darken the door again. And guess what? All that is, we're just pumping up numbers to make ourselves feel good. But we're not making disciples. We have been called to make disciples completely, fully, to go the rest of the way. See, getting someone to make a profession of faith is, in a certain sense, easy. But sticking with them to the end to help them learn how to follow Jesus is difficult. He says, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Now, for a lot of people, they see this and they say, okay, good. So I just have to teach people how to follow the red letters in the Bible, if your Bible still has red letters. Right? Mine doesn't. That's when Jesus is talking. And we say, good, okay, so that's like the Gospels. Not so fast. See, Jesus is a part of the Godhead, right? He is one person of God, the Trinity, our triune God. That means every command that happens in Scripture is a command from who? Jesus, right? It's from God, and Jesus is God. It is a command from Jesus. So many folks say they want to separate the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. But that's not what we see in Scripture. Jesus is one and the same. And we're to teach converts to obey, to observe everything that he has commanded us. Everything that he has commanded us. So how do we do this? Because we say, that's a, that's a tall order, right? It's hard to convince someone to do like one thing, right? If I can convince my son to, to stop, I don't know, yelling every time he's excited, you know, at the top of his lung, like that's a big thing. I can't, you know, it's going to take an entire lifetime to get him to do a number of things. We look at all of God's word and we say, how do we teach all of this to a person? 
Well, it takes taking them on for a lifetime of discipleship. See, Paul actually saw it as that relationship of a son and a father. He says of Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, as he's writing, he says, To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Paul saw Timothy as his son. And as his son, he understood that he had to raise him up from a, not just to a, from a baby to maybe a toddler, but to a full-grown adult. If you remember the first sermon I preached, I borrowed someone's baby from the high school, right? Like a little baby that cries to help you decide to make wise decisions, you know, and all that stuff. You remember that? No, do you? Okay. So that baby, and we talked about that. If you just bring that baby home, like, like you give birth to that baby, and you bring that baby home, and you sit down, and you're like, all right, cool. I'm glad you're born, so have a good life. We'll see you in 18 years. What is going to happen to that baby? If someone doesn't intervene, that baby's going to die. That baby's not going to make it to adulthood. And for so many of us, we are so excited because we bring some niece, nephew, grandchild to VBS, and they make some kind of profession of faith, and we're so excited, and it ends there. And we're happy if maybe we get them to church two or three times a year. That's not making disciples, that's making converts. And if we're only making converts, we're not fulfilling the Great Commission. We are to take these people, find folks who are babies in the faith, and to help them grow and be raised up to adulthood. So the question is this, though, what stops us? What is keeping you from doing it? Maybe the very first thing is just not having an understanding of it. Maybe you've never seen it. Maybe you've never had someone who mentored you and said, hey, can we get coffee this week and every, every other week and just talk about life, talk about what it means to follow Jesus, talk about what it means to apply the gospel to your job, to apply the gospel to your work or to, to your marriage, to apply the gospel to your parenting. Maybe you've never had that. And if that's the case, I would say, please come and talk to me and help. I want to help you understand what it looks like to do it. Maybe for you, though, it's fear or inadequacy. You say, well, I just don't know enough. What if I mess it up? What if I mess them up? Jesus tells us this, though. At the end of verse 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, we're not going at this alone. We're not doing this by ourselves. He is with us all the way to help us teach people what it means to be followers of Jesus. Maybe for you, though, it's, it's, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not fearful of it. I know what it looks like. But maybe for you, it's just time. Time is probably the number one thing that keeps people from actually taking the time to sit down and have a son or daughter in the faith, to make a disciple and to teach them what it means to observe everything Jesus has commanded. Because it takes some time, right? If you've ever actually discipled someone, it takes time to get from an infant to an adult. Understand this. The average American, as of this year, watches three and a half hours of television a day. That's 18 hours a week. If we give up two of those hours, we could disciple two people for an hour each, every single week. And guess what you get? You still get 16 sweet hours of television. We spend 4.7 hours on our phone. You put that and the three and a half hours together, that's 8.2 hours. And all of a sudden, that's all the time that you're awake and not at work or school. We sit around and say, well, I just wish I could make disciples. I wish I could do something for the kingdom. It may take giving up something. It may take dying to self. It may take you saying, maybe I don't need 
to have three and a half hours of television every day. Maybe I don't need to be on my phone checking Facebook all the time. It'll be there when I get back. It'll be there when I finish having lunch with this person to help them grow in their faith. Maybe for you, you've just never been discipled. I've hit on this before, but I want to hit on it again. You don't know what it looks like to actually disciple someone. And I understand the fear. I understand why kind of you're, you're unsure about it. Because it's almost like becoming a park ranger, right? And your job is to lead people down a path into, like, let's say, the Grand Canyon. And you've never, ever, ever been there before. Can you see how that's going to be a problem? Yeah, I do. I do not want that park ranger to lead me on a hike under any circumstances if they have never been where they're going. Here's the other thing. You're there, but you don't want anybody to know that you don't know. Because you're like, well, I'm a park ranger. I've been here a long time. I've done this a long time. I've worked for this job for 20 years. People cannot know that I don't know how to lead someone on a hike. People cannot know that I don't know how to disciple someone. If that's you, and if that's the case, I want to encourage you. Come, find me. Talk to me about that, and I'll help you figure out what it means to disciple someone. We'll find someone to disciple you, even if it's me. Not even if it's me, that's not gonna, but like, I will do it, okay? If I, if, if I have to spend half my week doing that, I'll do it. With 20 people for an hour a week, I'll do it. That way you all can go do it after that. We have to be able with Paul to say, as he says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Our aim and our goal as Christians is to look at Jesus and say, I want to do everything that he did. I want to obey God's commands as he did. And as we look to him and we imitate him, have people coming along behind us and saying, I'm going to imitate you because you're imitating Christ. My question for us, though, is this. If God's church as a whole exists to make disciples, and I believe that it does, our question for ourselves as a church is, do we at PG exist to make disciples? If someone came and said, why do you exist here? Why do you come together every single week? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and all the times of fellowship in between. And they say, why do you exist as a church? Could we in good confidence say, we are here trying to make disciples of Jesus? Church, I'm afraid that our church, like many others, does things corporately to make disciples. We have Sunday school. We have Sunday morning service and preaching. We have Sunday evening stuff. We do a lot corporately, but we don't do a lot individually. And I'm afraid that whenever disciples, true disciples, folks who, when it's time to, to kind of leave the nest, when it's time to, to, that they should be grown up in their faith, I'm afraid that if we make disciples, it's not on purpose, but it's actually in spite of what we've been doing. It's almost like it's on accident. It's only by God's grace that it's happened. My hope is that for us, that wouldn't be the case. That every single action and every motivation for the actions that we take can be pointed to and said, we do this to help people know Jesus and become more like Jesus. To the, where we say every single thing that we do is so people will know who he is and become more like him. They would learn to obey and observe all that he has commanded. Church, we need to be able to step back and look and say, as our vacation Bible school, for instance, that's happening this week, is it actually here to help people know and become more like Jesus? Or is it just because we can't not have a vacation Bible school? 
is Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Are all these services here to help people know and become more like Jesus? Or are they just there because we really don't want to get rid of it because we're afraid we'll be bored at home on Sunday night, Wednesday night? And I'm not saying that I'm, I'm not for getting rid of our services, just so you know. I want to have them. I just want more people to come, just to be honest. <laughs> but are those, maybe for you, you're not coming because you look at it and say, well, maybe these things aren't helping me learn to know and be more like Jesus. And if that's the case, we've got to fix that. Because what's the point? We're all wasting our time if we're just getting together because we're bored at home, because we're afraid of being lonely, because whatever. We need to come together to help each other know and learn to be more like Jesus. Are the conflicts that we have as a church? Is it over every single little thing that, that all these selfish interests? Because see, James says, why do you have quarrels and fights among, among you? He says, because your passions are at war within you. You, 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 you. It's about me, me, me. Are our conflicts over that or is it over issues of finding the best way to help people know and become more like Jesus? Because once again, like I said about doctrine and teaching last week, if we're going to rub up against each other over anything, church, may it not be selfishness. May it not be that I feel like I was done wrong. May it not be this and that, but may it be because we're rubbing up against each other saying, well, I think this is a good way to help us teach people how to know and be more like Jesus. Is our money spent in ways that help people know and become more like Jesus? Or is it self-serving? Charles Spurgeon said this, I cannot believe that you have tasted of the honey of the gospel if you can eat it all by yourself. If you've actually tasted the honey, the sweetness of what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, and you can look and say, look how good our God is that he came and saved us from our sin and now I can live a life that pleases him by observing what Christ has commanded us to do. If we really feel that way, if we've really been changed by him, we do not keep that to ourselves. We want other people to come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come, understand what it means to love him and follow him. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, and for you, you've never made a disciple, and it's for a reason that has nothing to do with not knowing how, but you know how, and you just haven't, I want to encourage you to repent of not doing it this morning. Repent of it. Because it is a command from God that we do it, and for us to not do it is sin. If you haven't been discipled, you say, I just don't know what to do. If you haven't had somebody to help you be a father or a mother in the faith, come and talk to me, and we're going to figure out someone to get you with. Even if I have to spend time with every single one of you every week, we'll make it happen. I want to say this with that, that when it comes to anything like that, doctrinally, counsel, whatever you need, I encourage people and want you to come and see me in the office. I'm not always there. I'm sometimes out visiting. So call and make an appointment. Make sure I'm there and come talk to me. and Say, I want to know what it means to make disciples. I want to know what it means to be discipled. I want to help people know more about Jesus. I want to learn more about the scripture. I want to know what to do because my child is doing this. I want to know what to do because my spouse isn't doing this. Whatever it is, please come see me. It's part of why I'm in the office, to be available, to talk to you and give counsel. 
And I know what you're thinking. This guy's like 29, so what kind of counsel can he give me? I can give you counsel better than 80 years of wisdom, and that's God's word. That's the kind of counsel I give. If you're here this morning, though, and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, and this is the last thing I'm going to say before we sing, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, what I want to encourage you to do is consider what he's called you to. To consider the fact that he has called all people to come and be his disciples. To not just be open to the idea of liking him and saying, well, he was probably a good moral teacher, but to look at him and say, Jesus is God. He is King. He is Lord. And he has called me to submit myself to him. If you're an unbeliever, I want to encourage you to come and be a disciple. But I want to encourage you to count the cost, to understand what it means. So come find me. If you want to come and talk to me during this time, that's fine. We probably don't have time to talk about enough because I want to help you understand to count the cost. Jesus says in so many words, I'm summarizing here, but only a fool would go and build a building without first making sure they had the right things. Only a king who is a fool would go out and wage battle without knowing how, what kind of army he has and if he can stack up. In the same way, only a fool would follow Jesus without counting the cost. And there are many today who are false converts, who are sitting at home right now, feeling like they're satisfied, feeling like they have a get-out-of-hell-free card, because they didn't count the cost beforehand. They didn't realize there was a cost. So please come see me, and we'll start the conversation of helping you understand what it means to count the cost to be a disciple of Jesus. Not just a convert, not just someone who thinks nice thoughts about him, but one who says, I'm committing myself to walking in the way in which he walked, to trusting in him, and to observing what he has commanded us. Let's pray. Lord, would you forgive us? Our church here, for as far as we have been a part of it in the past, and the church in America as a whole for being satisfied stopping at converts and not disciples. Lord, we know that your scripture says there are many who one day before you're thrown into the judgment will say, Lord, Lord, do we not do many, even do things for you in your name? Do we serve you? And you'll say, I didn't know you. Depart from me. Lord, may we as a church not be content and tallying up people who come to the front but never step foot inside this church again. May we not be content with the number of people who we've baptized who take no part in the life of the church. But instead, would we only be content in making disciples? May we only be content that because of the fact that we have tasted the sweetness of the gospel as Spurgeon talked about, May we only be content whenever we have taken it to others and said to them, taste and see that our God is good. His gospel made real in Jesus Christ is good. We thank you for this great command, commission that you've given us. We thank you for the authority that you have to give it and that you've given us to proclaim it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.